Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Sidney Gable and I'm the editor of the TLS. And yes, we've grappled with technology, God I hate technology, and are happily here to distract you from real world angst with another podcast. Thea, you're back and at home under the close supervision of Alf. I do follow you on Twitter. How are you? How is he? <laughs> I think let's, let's, let's focus on the positive. Alf is, is having a lovely time. Um, I don't oh, know if you can hear him, in fact, in the, yeah, yeah. In the, in the background. Uh, yeah, he's having a great time because, I mean, let's face it, we're here all the time. He can impress us with all the stuff that we don't usually get to see, like how brave he is in chasing a fly around the house or how oh, extraordinarily heroic. deep he can dig in the garden. And, uh, can you, and you can still take him out for a walk, can't you? Well, I can't because um, I can't walk at the moment because I've had some surgery. <laughs> so I'm, I've, I've got three weeks head start on self-isolation and I've just been um, in the house. Go, <laughs> so I don't even have that mad, escape. I think oh I already have. Let's, let's be honest. Well, let's see how the, the next 45 minutes goes. Uh, and now, we've been asking food questions. Roz, who replaced you on week one, yeah. uh, doesn't like cake. I know, it's mad, isn't it? I know. What's, and then she suggested carrot cake, which I think is the weasel, the weasel answer to a cake question. Oh, I don't know. I experience. do love carrot cake. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, my food question to you, Thea, is this. You can only take one meal into quarantine. Yeah. What is I mean, it? That, that's more or less what we're dealing with. Today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, it's, it's a, it's, I, I pretty a much only have got one type of food in the house. I have pasta, which is like, it's like currency now. So I have, I have a lot of pasta. Hopefully people don't know where I live or there'll be break-ins. They're, yeah, exactly. So um, what would you have? Go on, what's the, what's the um, pasta? I would just, if I had to eat the same thing every day, which I do, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it would just be pasta with a, a good tomato sauce. Um, and that, yeah, I could eat that every day. <laughs> mine is pasta with tuna, sweet corn and pesto. Oh, that's Which I think is probably mad. an Italian, Italian classic. <laughs> Dude, it's mad. Loads of people eat that. No? Tuna, sweet corn and pesto. Yeah. I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, but, you I know, I mean, I, these are strange times, so... Yeah, I, I've got very provincial taste. Someone listening, <laughs> someone listening will, will, will probably be eating it as we speak, I'd have think. It's quite a common thing. Um, right, enough of all that. Um, listen, I do want to urge everyone out there, if possible, to keep supporting the TLS. You can subscribe very cheaply indeed if you simply do this. A special offer code there. So what you're going to do is go into Google the-tls.co.uk 
forward slash podcast offer. That's podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or $5. And while we're here, I wanted to give a shout out to our American colleague, David, and his wife, Deborah, who listen to us while on the treadmill at home in Pennsylvania. They can't get out of their home, obviously. And they go on the treadmill. And he beseeched me to keep the show short because he has to work out for how long the podcast goes. <laughs> so basically, I'm just going to slow my voice right down <laughs> so he can get a little bit more out of breath. And actually, I did think of this theory. While we're all kept apart... We did a thing about a year ago where people sort of got in touch with where they're listening to us. And I think we should do that again because as the sort of horizon shrinks a bit, it's quite nice to know that there is a world elsewhere. So please do tweet us at FBFM under slash podcast. That's at FBFM under slash podcast or at Stig Abel. What are you? Are you at Thea Lenarduzzi? I am. I think there's an underscore between Thea and Lenarduzzi, but yeah. At Thea underscore Lenarduzzi. And tell us where you're listening and we will read it out and celebrate the fact that we're all just about still connected and partially sane. Uh, coming up this week, arts editor and podcast stalwart Lucy Dallas is here to talk us through this month's AV column, What to Watch and Listen If You Have Time on Your Hands which I believe some people do. And you may remember Sam Graydon from a while back telling us about quantum physics. Well, he's also interested in English folk music. Of course he is. He'll tell us why. And the lead in the paper this week is Josephine Livingstone, who has written elegantly and at length about discrimination, inclusivity and the art world. When it emerges from quarantine, what will it look and feel like? Sam Graydon quotes the founding father of English folk music, Cecil Sharp, in this week's paper. He called the genre a communal product, the expression and musical idiom of aims and ideals that are primarily national in character, evolved by the many, which sounds like something poised somewhere between the politics of Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. Sam's reviewed two albums this week, both nostalgic, both looking back at and questioningly towards the meanings we attribute to our country. Sam Lee's Old Wow and England is a Garden by Corner Shop. His conclusion is thought-provoking. Both records show that there is no shame in being proud of where you are from and of loving your country, just so long as you are careful and open and know what it is you love. Serious stuff. Sam joins us now. Hello, Sam. Hello, Stig. Now, you're too young to be into folk music, surely. It's an old man's game, isn't it? Um, well, obviously, yes and no. But I did go <laughs> to um, I did go to a folk music night in Charleston with a friend of mine. We were the youngest people there by about 30 years. Um, so, yes, in that sense. <laughs> but you are. But you, 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 you are a genuine fan. I am a genuine fan. I'm not, I, you know, I've been to this folk night. I don't go very regularly. I'm a fan, but it engenders um, a sort of love, like a family, which I'm not yeah. part of. I would, I'll grant you that. <laughs> it, it also engenders a kind of, like you talk about this quite a lot in the piece, there's a sort of politics to folk music, is it? Is it a political uh, medium, do you think? And what are its politics? I mean, because... In some ways, it's oddly nationalistic, and in other ways, it feels quite egalitarian, and those two often don't go together. Yes, and if it has a politics, that is definitely where it sits, a conservative socialism, uh, which is how Cecil Sharp described himself. He called himself a conservative socialist. Um, And it's because of 
him and a group of men in the turn of the century, um, including Vaughan Williams. Um, uh, that is where that politics comes from. It was the revival of folk music, as it's called, um, because the music itself isn't political. They're singing about love and loss and the things that pop songs sing about, mostly. The, the politics as well, though, do come into it in terms of the subjects. And there was certainly, um, in every in every revival of folk tradition, there's always been this tension around the choice of subjects. Specifically, there was a common charge that mostly, you know, urban performers um, were idealising agrarian workers or, you know, the sailor's life uh, and, and that sort of thing. And also you did mention... Um, Cecil Sharp and a group of men. Um, it has it, it has it has managed to sort of preserve this. I mean, I'm sure it's not the case anymore, but historically, it was quite a uh, a male domain, or certainly in terms of the people who were getting the credit. I'm thinking of Alan Lomax, who did a lot of work with Shirley Collins, and Shirley Collins has sort of been airbrushed from the the credit the credit. <laughs> yeah, this the way we think about folk music. It is still indebted to the ideas that went into it. It needed saving, which was this turn of the century point. And so that is a sort of nationalism, which was sort of the artistic mode at the time, not through necessarily a turn against things that weren't England, but it just happened to be facing inward at the time. And that has remained, and that has sort of now being used to turn against things that aren't England. But that's not Sam Lee. I, I think I've met Sam Lee and interviewed him before. He's, um, I think he, you know, he, I'm sure he would be class himself as liberal left. He's a really interesting modern case, but he, he still picks up on the more socialist side of it as well. And the socialist side of it is that um, these songs represent communal product, um, which again, that's that's slightly nationalistic in that sense. It's a product of the people, and it's a certain type of people, like a nation, that produces it. But it's also all types of people. They belong to everybody. They are, as it were, classless. That's the idea behind it, of course. As Thea was saying, um, that you know, most of the time that's actually just a middle class idea. That's you know, they see it as a, a classless product, but they are idealizing and exploiting um, peasants, as I'm sure Sharp calls them. Um, but the idea behind it is the sort of socialism of William Morris, if you see what I mean. And Lee, yeah. I think, is in that camp. Uh, let's hear. We're going to hear a bit, aren't we? We're going to hear sweet six. We're going to hear sweet sixteen. Yes, indeed. For the plowman lads, they're gay. Young lads, they're false and deceiving old. So what are we hearing there, Sam? Well, this is um, an album track from the album rather than one of the singles, but it's representative of what Sam Lee, who is this modern, um, acclaimed, he was nominated for the Mercury Prize for his first album in 2012. Um, he's this acclaimed interesting folk singer a folk singer in the traditional sense so he is working with original tunes so not he's not exactly a singer-songwriter although he does write his own music occasionally in his own words 
um, but he is a song collector in the way that um, in the way that Vaughan Williams was. Um, he finds old tunes, he works with old tunes, but he then reinvents them for our times, effectively. And that is a, and Sweet Sixteen is a really good example of how he plays with the text and tune that he um, has chosen. And so, so what sorts of stories, what sorts of stories um, and characters is he bringing us then? Um, well, in this in this case, it's um, a song uh, sung by a young woman, nineteen, um, remembering when she was sixteen, when she had a um, sort of romantic and sexual relationship with a ploughboy, um, and then she got pregnant, and then the ploughboy left to go to war. Um, and there's a lot of those traditional sort of tropes uh in there and that's pretty old school isn't it that's the, i mean if you, if you read that out someone would say that's a classic folk song exactly and it is a classic folk song it's a scottish folk song i think called the bothy lads but what lee does to make that as it were relevant and plausibly interesting to people who you know don't go to folk nights in charlton um, me yes indeed to you stig uh is that he he musically changes it to give it um, an atmosphere that's not very commonly associated with. And that is, instead of melancholy or sort of hey-ho type joy, um, he infuses the songs with a sense of unease and questioning, sometimes anger, um, which are all his feelings about. He's a person who cares very much about um, the environment. He's sung at Extinction Rebellion. That's when I that, that's when I interviewed him. And he's also about the least folksy. I mean, he's quite handsome. Yeah, he's charismatic and young. Yeah, he, I mean, he hasn't got a beard or anything like, that I can remember. Uh, so he kind of feels like he's, he's almost like, like the handsome new face of folk. Yeah, indeed. He, musically, he's making it more accessible. Um, and also in, in this song in particular, which is a good example of what he's doing, he just twists um, the original meaning enough. So in the original version of the song, he, or the text goes, and who knows who your daddy, oh, so who knows who your daddy is because I, you know, threw it about so much, basically. (laughs) That's the, uh, that's the meaning of it. I can see, uh, you know, there's a folk folk singer inside you, Sam, I think, probably waiting to get out there. Thank you, thank you. I will. Uh, I'll write that one down. Um, but Lee changes it to, and Lord knows where your daddy, um, Plowboy, has gone and left her and not been in contact. So the implicit blame for the child is shifted from the woman to the man. Well, let's move on to another because I remember Thea. Are you do you remember Corner Shop the first time round? Of course, yes. Brim full of Asher. Yeah, I, I was probably it's sort of Britpop. I feel Britpop when you say it. When when I read your piece, Sam, uh, are they really folky? How do they how do they connect to to old Sam Lee or young Sam Lee? They aren't folky, um, certainly not in the Cecil Sharp type way, and not even in the modern singer songwriter Bob Dylan type of way. Um, but the themes that they deal with on this album in particular 
though they've been dealing with them throughout their career, really, um, are, they have an overlap because they, this is called England is a Garden. Um, and it is a deliberately political look at modern England and what that actually looks like. It's about taking a look at the country as it is. Because they're Asian, they're Asian British guys, aren't they? That yeah, that, yeah. They've always been very political. Um, you mentioned um, uh, them. I think they they burnt a photo of Morrissey uh, way way back when. But I mean, they've always been very political. And most recently, they were very uh, against Brexit. They gave uh, a theme tune to the Romaniacs podcast. Um, how do the politics come across in their music? In the lyrics, I know that's a, you know that's an obvious thing to say. But the odd thing is that. The music is all exceptionally jolly. It's jolly and summery and quite misleading in its evanescence because it sounds like it shouldn't be saying anything. What it, or if anything at all, it sounds like it should be saying, what a great time we're having. And so that in itself is part of the album's politics because despite it standing against Brexit and kind of and this narrow nationalism, seeing an idealised past and seeing uh, England in particular as exceptional, it still is filled with love for home. Home, as they see it, is is this place of uh, of mixing and of um, all these various influences coming together. Yes, exactly, and including heavy metal, Sam. Including heavy metal. They are um, from the black country. Oh, Midlanders like me. There's a song, should we hear a bit of the song? Because there's a song that sort of references the Midlands and heavy metal, as if, which is kind of like right in, right my, in my sweet spot, really. And so is their argument really that this is a country that's kind of multiplicitous? There's, there's, all sorts of, there's all sorts of everything? Yeah, all sorts of everything. And they make the point very well um, musically as well. So they have all these different, well, they have a sort of multitude of instruments and they flirt with all types of genres. There's a brilliant reggae-inspired song on the album called Everywhere That Wog Army Roam. And it sort of has this quite insistent, catchy chorus. It's about immigration and the influence of other cultures, but it's also about, and this is the point I make that wraps up the piece, and this is what Lee is also trying to draw out. It makes the point that you can be proud of where you're from. And in fact, it's, very, it's a natural kind of feeling, feeling proud of wherever you're from, sort of a love for it. If we are to love it, then we should love it as it is, um, instead of an old, idealised, folky, you know, old folk version of it that's idealised. You should see it for what it is and love it. That's a, uh, that's a good sentiment to end on. Um, Sam Graydon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Steve. Theo, are you a folk fan? You don't strike I, me as I a am, folk fan. I am. Well, see, oh, I, I, I live purely to surprise you, Stig. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I am. I used to go to a lot of um, folk gigs, especially when I lived 
uh, in Yorkshire. Um, uh, I have a lot of friends who are folk musicians, friends who worked at Cecil Sharp House. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Did you ever drink uh, Snake Bikerton Black? No. Is that part of what you have to do? <laughs> I, when you say folk, I think of people drinking Snake Bite and Black, which is oh, cider no. I just and black drank curry. a lot. I just drank a lot of Cascale. Oh, that's all right then. All right. <laughs> all right. Fine. I accept you as a folky. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As regular readers will know, each month we do an AV audio-visual column summarising the most interesting things you can listen to and watch. This more than ever now feels like a public service. The literary treasure that is Ian Sansom begins his TV submission like this. Sans TV, sans broadband, sans everything, like many people, I'm currently self-isolating and I'm in fact writing this with my thumbs on my phone while holed up in my parents' hastily converted garage, sustained only by jars of ship and paste, part-baked baguettes and an occasional 3G signal, which enables me to pick up the daily apocalyptic briefings and to intermittently stream TV. Anyway, in those circumstances, he reviews the Channel 4 show Five Guys a Week and is, I'm fairly confident, the only critic to do so with reference to Chaucer and C.S. Lewis's The Allegory of Love. Alice Wadsworth, meanwhile, has been listening to podcasts, including one called Reply All, which is about the internet. A mad place at the best of times, but during pandemics, probably somewhere between a haven and a hellhole. Lucy Dallas has commissioned these pieces and is here to discuss them. Lucy, hello. Uh, 
firstly, I thought we'd all say what we're watching at the moment to escape coronavirus and the misery of the news. What are you watching? Um, well, it, it, uh, in terms of sheer escapism, um, I sometimes I have to say I, I turn to musicals. Oh, go on. <laughs> There's a bit of that going on. The other day we watched the surprisingly good Aladdin because it's by Guy oh, Ritchie. What the... Hang on, hang on. Is not that what Disney makes Aladdin? it surprisingly good? Yeah, yes, I'm afraid so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hang on, Guy Ritchie directed Aladdin? Yes. Will Smith is the genie. He's really good. Very good cast. Brilliant tiger. I mean, wonderful songs. Really I did not good. see is this it... one coming, Lucy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Is it the same song? Is Sorry, same should I say... Um, no, really, I've been watching Truffaut and Fellini. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. Yeah. Uh, is it the same songs as the cartoon? Yes. And a couple of new ones. But why bother? The cartoon's really good. Well, this is really good for the same reason that they've remade everything else. There's a new girl power one because she it sort of emancipates herself. It's really good. Sorry, it's not. Well, I mean, it's not very um, uh, literary. Well, it has, you know. No, 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 no. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring mine. Mine's not literary at all. Thea, what about you? But this is about escapism. That's exactly right. Well, do you know what? So, one thing I should say is, um, I'm sure everyone's already up on this, but because cinemas are closed, um, certain platforms are really upping their film game. So, Curzon, for example, Curzon have their chain of cinemas over here in the UK. Um, and they also have Curzon online, um, like their home home cinema thing. So I've been watching lots of films. I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, the Sidine Chama film, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. Um, and obviously I wasn't able to get to the cinema. So um, I watched that. Um, I've also, weirdly, um, I'm sure someone can tell you about the why in relation to my psyche this is happening but I've retreated to the 90s yeah, <laughs> so good. I, I rewatched Thelma and Louise which is just brilliant uh, and I'm working my it? way um it's so young so young um but I, I I'm also working my way steadily through the uh the ER box set uh, oh, and, how, how is that? And how it is, is that? so, so good. I mean, especially the early seasons. So well written. The dialogue is so good. And um, also very ahead of the curve in terms of the issues that it tackles from transphobia to everyday sexism, diversity in the workplace. It's so good. I've you know really, what, you, really enjoyed do it. You know, do you know what I can remember? I can remember in being in Loughborough when that show first came out and we taped it from Channel 4. Mm. And I remember the pilot... Because the pilot begins where the, they're all trying to get sleep. Yeah. All, all the overworked doctors. Yeah. And, and the whole thing is just frantic. Yeah. And I don't think I'd seen an American... I don't say I'd seen many American dramas ever at that point. Because this is what, like, 94, do you think? Yeah, 93, I think, even. 93, yeah. So I'd have been 13. And so I can remember just being like, I can't believe how quick this stuff is. Yeah. And, and do you know what? It comes together so, so well. And one of the weird things about watching it now is that a hospital is incredibly pertinent, but also how quickly my brain appears to have rewired in such a way that I keep finding myself worrying about the fact that they're standing so close to each other or that they haven't washed their hands or they're going outside. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, we've I've, all become. I did that when I was watching something the other day. Someone on a bus, and I almost shouted, "Go, go and sit on the other seat. Don't sit next to them." But it was from the old days when you could sit next to each other. There's a documentary on um, on BBC iPlayer at the moment, which is called uh, "The Crisis on Britain's Buses," uh, and I also disappeared into that. The kind of the and it is an absolute travesty that rural bus routes have been completely cancelled. But there's also just this quiet comfortingness of just that's what used to be our news that's what we used to be frightened and outraged by yeah my little baby loves three things in the world really going to the library going to the playground and sitting on a bus and of course she can do none of those things and has no no concept of why she can't either so she just sort of goes bus 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 and we can't go and sit on a bus. You can make, uh, a, watching... you can make a pretend bus from your uh, kitchen table with chairs on top. I've, I've done that in my life. Well, that is a, uh, yeah. An accident waiting to happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm watching How I Met Your Mother uh, again, which uh, is the show that I will die in a ditch on. No one else thinks it's really good. I think it's the best American comedy ever written, but we'll move on. I, I'm, I'm not gonna, we're not going to that again. Um Lucy, speaking of non-literary things, how did Ian Sansom pitch reviewing a show called Five Guys a Week? I wish I could tell you that it was, you know, like my brilliant idea or something. But um, the fact is that when he writes about TV for us, like we have, you know, we have we, we have Netflix things, we do, we do a lot of that and HBO and the, and the kind of very slick, groovy stuff. Um, but the other things that Ian has written about were uh, Chase Around the World and uh, Peaky Blinders. And um, it's so brilliant when he does it. He he tends to say, you know, I'm going to write about something on, as it were, normal telly. So he just said, have you got anything on Five Guys a Week? And I was able to truthfully say, no, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Uh, and basically, as I understand the show, because I think my wife would like it, I was going to recommend it to her. A woman hosts five blokes in her house and she picks one of them at the end to, to stay with. I think so. I think it's for the weekend. It's not for, like, months. Well, it probably is now. Yes. They've probably started for the weekend and they're, just, they're now self-isolating together. Yeah, quite. But, yes, I think, I think that's right. They, they sort of get eliminated or asked to leave. It sounds like... The kind of mad child of the original Blind Date, as hosted by Cilla Black, I mean, another 90s staple, uh, and Come Dine With Me. Yeah, I had a maths teacher who went on uh, Blind Date. Really? That must have been good for you, for the pupils. (laughs) uh, And he was quite, he didn't get picked, uh, and he was quite good-humoured about it, but sometimes he wasn't. So he used to walk around school, and if people started singing which they did, the Blind Date theme tune at them, he occasionally laughed and occasionally put them in detention, which seemed, <laughs> which seemed, which seemed capricious. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, Ian Sansom quotes two great lines in this. I mean, this is classic reality TV, is it? It's like, this is like distilled reality TV, kind of slightly awful, weird people in a small space saying silly things, like, pineapple is the smell of masculine... And describing a steak as fishy like a carp's tit. Yeah, can I just say that? So it wasn't Ian. That that, that Ian was quoting other people saying no, those I know, things. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm not suggesting that Ian Ian has those thoughts. But I mean, this just basically is, is a classic reality TV reel, isn't it? Well, it, yeah, because they just say the most brilliant things. The guy, um, yes, it was his signature cologne, who smells like pineapple, because he said it was the smell of masculine. There's another bit which um, which I thought was very good. 
Um, and Ian Sansom says, Scott was an emotionally labile country and western singer, determined to give Amy 100%, whatever that might mean. By the time they were all out at a nightclub together, Scott was certainly giving Amy at least 50%, which rather upset the other chaps. <laughs> which, you know, just make of that what you will. I <laughs> thought it was marvellous. Yeah, uh, let's talk about podcasts, uh, because you got Alice to review podcasts. Uh, and again, in the spirit of, I mean, God only knows what you're going to say now, Lucy. I mean, you've brought, brought out Aladdin. We've had ER. I mean, Thea at least tried to say, oh, I'm watching a portrait of a lady on fire. I mean... No one believed it, but at least she had the good good grace to pretend she was watching highbrow cinema rather than just just dross. But anyway, on podcasts, what do you what are you listening to at these moments of of crisis? Well, do, do you want an honest answer? Yes. Okay. I do. So the so the only podcast I've been listening to recently are are, are are these ones for work. But I will give you some highbrow, which is genuine, um, um, especially when in when we're trying to make everything work from home, and uh, it can be rather frustrating. I had um, there's there's nothing like Bach to 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 make you you know breathe out a bit and feel like things are reasonable and balance will return. Bach, that's good. Thea, what are you listening to? Um, well, again, I thought for a second about lying to you, but um, <laughs> apart, no. apart from uh, listening to a lot of friends and family members uh, confused and concerned voices over various video calls, I've actually been listening to a lot of silence and really, really enjoying it. And birdsong. Um, oh, but yeah. Birdsong. I mean, the road outside my house is incredibly quiet and the birds around the back of the house are very, very loud at the moment. And I'm sure there's... Uh, it's not just a coincidence. Um, oh, there's no, lovely. there's no commute. There's no dog walking for me. So that's my my main podcast listening time. Um, it's just a, it's the yeah. Bird, so bird, just bird, apart yeah. from that, bird song, silence, and lots of music. I've been listening to lots, a lot of a lot of dancehall music actually, which usually makes me feel like summer's coming. So I'm trying to sort of rewire my my brain into some kind of like uplifting. <laughs> fun mode with very very dubious uh gender politics but yeah do you know what i'm listening to uh which is doesn't reflect well on me uh, at night time to help me go to sleep i'm listening to old baseball games i've got a, a baseball app uh, and i play an old game from last year and i just listen to that for 10 minutes before falling to sleep i think um someone should write the great american novel about someone doing that that's the yeah, beginning wait, wait. Of it, isn't it? <laughs> I've I've just written the first line on my computer as we speak. So yeah, <laughs> good. You're welcome. The, 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 yeah, the real the real no, the real tragedy of coronavirus will be all the all the novels that are produced in isolation as we speak. I don't think that will be the real tragedy, Stig. But anyway, no, it's, it, it'll be a real tragedy, a minor tragedy in the great scheme of things. Right. Anyway, we're, we're supposed to be talking about podcasts. Uh, Lucy, what is Reply All? It sounds brilliant. Yes. Um, so Alice Wadsworth. Um, um, talked to me about this and she uh, has done a lovely uh, piece about it so it's a podcast hosted by two um, two people who've done technology broadcasts before the one I was listening to they referred to themselves as internet experts and then laughed for about five minutes because they were so delighted by that idea um, and what it, it, it just sort of translates and demystifies uh, things that happen on the internet and Twitter, and um, they've got a uh, there's a section called um, System Tech Support, I think. Um, super, tech. super Tech Support, sorry, yeah. Um, and they've also got uh, what Alice talks about a game called Yes, Yes, No, when basically the two 
young ones um, try and help their boss, who is older, to understand um, uh, a tweet or something that's gone on in social media or the internet. The idea being that they should understand it and, and he probably won't. Though it doesn't always work out that way. So it can it's quite complicated, but they unpick... Um, some of the kind of beefs and feuds and things that are going on. And as Alice says, it's nice because they don't particularly come down, they're not judgy, they don't call people out, they they kind of point out what's going on and they laugh a lot, um, but they're pretty um, balanced and relaxed about everything. And it's a nice, it's a nice attitude, it's a nice, um, it's a sort of, yeah, demystifying, it's making the whole thing less... Um, off-putting I think. Does this appeal to you Lucy because you are not on Twitter you uh, I'm surprised I know what it you is, have a phone at all. Does this interest you? Um, yeah it's nice it, it, what 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 appeals to me is the whole um, the attitude of the whole thing actually uh, it's a nice idea to to sort of translate things anyway uh, and they've just got this very laid-back approach to it so you know the way that um twitter and other things just can get rather hysterical very quickly and they're not like that so it's it's a really nice idea and and they're, it's they're an interesting host it's an interesting thing anyway isn't it that all of the major events in obviously humanity's existence have pre-existed social media so you know first world war second world war the spanish flu all the things that have been raised in the last few weeks as a sort of uh, analogy to coronavirus and you do wonder how the impact of I mean on the plus side isolation is much better now because we can communicate quickly with each other that must be I mean if imagine if you just had nothing and you were sitting at your home for two weeks and you couldn't speak to anyone that would be terrifying and so people are much more connected that's a good thing but the possible transmission of hysteria the focusing on the negatives the scapegoating all of that stuff feels a lot easier now doesn't it with with social media um, yeah, I think it is, but I don't think it's... I mean, I just think it's a medium. Presumably when, you know, when telly came along and something bad happened, everyone went, oh, my God, you know, um, what would it be without the telly or isn't the telly awful? I think it does, but it is a bit like... I think maybe Twitter particularly is like a magnifying glass, isn't it? It's also not representative. I'm, I'm always struck by... It's something like only 9% of people are on Twitter or something. It's an absurdly low number of, of people. Yeah. Um, I, I'm much more of a tweeter than you two to combined, I feel, much to my disgrace. I probably you know, average one tweet a week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but have you, have you looked at it more, Thea, in the last couple of weeks when you've not been, not been around? Um, I don't think I have, to be honest, no. Um, no, I think I've, I, I've spent more time on the phone in the past week than I have in my whole life. <laughs> so that I've takes up a lot of time. I was in speaking I, to people rather than scrolling. Yeah. I've got this advice I give to people, which is to avoid the terror scroll. And mm. I think the problem with things like Twitter particularly is at a time like this, you need to get your new... You can't completely saturate yourself in news because it will just make you feel miserable. And so you should go to a place you trust, you know, a, uh, a newspaper website that you trust or a broadcaster you trust and know what's happening. But if you do the terror scroll, which I do when I wake up in the morning, you just start seeing all this stuff like the world... I mean, literally at the moment, the world's ending, the world's ending, the world's ending. And actually, I do genuinely feel one of the things to do in that situation is to put your phone away, go and listen to a podcast that's not talking about it too much, go and read a book, 
go and watch a musical if you have to. But, you know, find stuff that just that distracts you. That's, that's more important than ever, don't you think? I mean, doing the terror scroll, as you call it, first thing in the morning is probably the worst time that you could ever do it. That In China, there's... Um, I can't remember what the term is, but they have a term for... Um, the period when you've just woken up, when you're sort of still in bed, you're still within the, the grasp of sleep. Uh, and that's when your demons visit you and kind of make you feel unsettled and nervous, you know, anxious and uh, and worried about life. So to compound the situation by doing a terror scroll just <laughs> sounds not wise to me. <laughs> so what I'm reading at the minute, which is a classic example of my stress, I'm reading Captain Hornblower by C.S. Forrester. Uh, which is a sort of completely, you know, having talked about Patrick O'Brien whenever we did, this is the, this is the even kind of less literary Patrick O'Brien, but I'm really enjoying it. It's just sort of a man standing with a, a stiff upper lip as he gets sort of doused by salty water all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm loving that. That sounds perfect. I'm trying to read, I'm reading bits of Brigadier Gerard, which is Arthur Conan Doyle. I think, and and um, it's a similar sort of thing, except he's, he's like an idiot and he doesn't realise. Everyone else thinks he's a oh, buffoon. Oh, what's that called? I've not heard that. Say it, what's it called again? Brigadier, Brigadier Gerard. Brigadier Ger- by, by Conan Doyle? Yeah, he's French actually. It might be Ger- I think I think he's Gerard with two R's, and it's great because um, people just keep um, obviously thinking he's awful, and he relays this, um, but whilst telling you how brilliant he is, it's really it's good. Oh, I'm going to read that, Lucy. I love a bit of Conan Doyle. I've never heard of that. Yep, I, re- I recommend that too. Oh, well done. All is forgiven. All is forgiven. Lucy Dallas, as ever, great pleasure. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Lucy. <laughs> I love a good book recommendation, dear. It's uh, um, what are you reading, by the way? You might as well finish it off. Anything you'd recommend? Um, <clears throat> I've been reading Anne Tyler, um, a spool of ah, blue thread. Um, is it good? Which is just four hundred pages of very quiet, slow um, family tension, um, yeah. which again is just a quite banal thing to worry about (laughs) which i'm quite enjoying just the quietness of it no global pandemic uh just yeah just some some disgruntled family members not quite coming together brilliant brilliant stuff All art is created and consumed within a society. It's a pretty simple, indisputable statement, but its implications are far-reaching. Add two connected, equally simple truths, that our societies are not equal, and that artistic tastes change over time, and we begin to get a much more detailed view of the predicament we're here to talk about today. An individual's race, class, gender, and the particular time and place in which they live will determine their access to, appreciation of, and involvement in the making and dissemination of a given piece of art, be it a painting, novel, play, or TV programme. In other words, your background determines whether you're more likely to be an artist or writer, gallery curator or publisher, publicist, journalist, reader or gallery visitor, or the person who cleans the floors once everyone else has left. But... And this is a perfectly valid question. Haven't things changed in recent years? Haven't we got better at representation in the arts? This week, Josephine Livingstone looks into precisely that, reviewing three books that focus on the US and the UK respectively, entitled Discriminating Tastes and the Expansion of the Arts by Jennifer Lena, Steal As Much As You Can, How to Win the Culture Wars in an Age of Austerity by Natalie Ola, and Smashing It, Working Class Artists on Life, Art and Making It Happen, edited by Sabrina Mafuz. 
Together, Josephine says, these books take us straight to the hypocrisy at the heart of today's art sector. Uh, Josephine joins us now, uh, we hope, down the line from New York. Hello. Josephine, hello. Hello. Hooray. <laughs> um, right. So, I mean, of the three books that you review, um, entitled by Jennifer Lena, that's the one that seems to have the most uh, sort of overarching theory. So maybe if we start with that one, what, what is uh, Lena's thesis? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's a very, very overarching book that um, it looks at basically the entire history of the United States. It's not that long of a period, but it's quite long. And she takes as her um, premise a, a, a paradox that she's observed in contemporary um, culture, which is that it's no longer characteristic of elite society to have elitist tastes. Um, if that makes sense to you, um, she. So, is that the idea that po posh posh people aren't aren't always highbrow now? Really. Well, I think that she's saying that almost universally, even if you have highbrow taste as a posh person now, um, you're not going to advertise yourself as being particularly cosmopolitan you know, well-educated. You're not going to be demonstrating that you have the finest cultural taste there is if the only things you like are ballet and opera, right? That um, it's now for, for rich people with, who consider themselves cultivated, it's much more common to have a sort of more of like a, a magpie taste in which, you know, you, you love what you love and that is sort of uh, kind of like a vindication of your own cultivated tastes rather than following you know all of the crowd to the opera house on a friday night as was perhaps more common in the late 19th century earliest early 20th century lena uh, she's an associate professor at uh, columbia so her her approach is academic she's essentially taking a, a long durée view on this basic transformation just trying to you know get at the numbers get at the ins and outs of how this happened you know and maybe scratch the surface of why but and so we've we, we've we've basically arrived at a point of um, the rather clunky uh, terminology as cultural omnivorousness, um, which is which is what you're describing. So I mean, why is it problematic? Okay, so this is a, a conclusion that it takes Lena a really long time to reach because she's going very very um, carefully through the evidence. The core of her argument basically is that as tastes and again she's writing about america and later on in, you know in the article you know we bring in the uk but essentially here we're talking about the states mm -hmm. she argues that as access to consuming a wide variety of arts broadened over the course of the 20th century and into our sort of you know postmodern 21st century where you know all arts are sort of like conceptually equal that transformation um, has given Americans the impression that the people who are making that art are now sort of equivalently, you know, the access to making art has been equivalently democratized. And that is not actually the case. So she's pointing out that even though rich people say that they like everything now, that doesn't actually mean um, that every kind of art is, you know, being equally well-funded. She's sort of saying, like, look at the money, you know, like, look at the the social statistics that um, are kind of hiding behind this new 
concept of omnivorous, as you've mentioned. And you mentioned um, a turn in, in filmmaking in America, for example, where um, in, in the 90s, uh, films started to be made uh, that put um, uh, black communities uh, as you know protagonists in, in major films. Um, and that this sort of fed into this idea that because we're seeing people of colour from diverse backgrounds on the screen, that must mean that those people are involved in the production uh, and benefiting from the production uh, of these art forms. Very good example that she brings up um, in terms of black cinema in the you know late 80s, early 90s. There was this moment of sort of the explosion of representation um, in terms of what was being really popular in the movie theatres. But it's really interesting nowadays hearing those black directors looking back at that time. There was recently a really great roundtable in the New York Times between a number of um, people working in cinema in the early 90s describing how there was a complete mismatch between what was going on on the public stage, you know, whereby uh, this impression was being disseminated that, right, as if this Spike Lee's story of Do the Right Thing from Bedstuy can make it to, you know, the highest levels of Hollywood that this has something to do with the people in Bedstuy, right? Or that um that this is gonna mean that there are people on, you know, the Oscars voting uh committees who have anything to do with it. It's a kind of interesting artistic principle that, you know, the moving images, the work itself moves so much faster than society, you know, ever can. Um, but it Lena's point really is that that disconnect ends up sort of being covered up by the magic of art, you know, <laughs> that um, we almost get distracted by congratulating ourselves as consumers for our diverse tastes. Mm. And that is really causing us to miss things which are, you know, important, uh, uh, really uh, important uh, factors in our, the way that art gets produced in our society. I spoke to a, to a diversity person and she said there's a problem of sort of quick win culture where she said that if you create diversity on screen everyone applauds themselves like you say and actually it prevents you from looking at the roles behind the camera the production people the directors because the quick win culture means you'll just be busy being applauded for the fact that your show has four black people in it visibly and that ignores everybody else absolutely and the viewer right they've only got access to their screen you know you can watch the credits and if you're a particularly engaged viewer you could find these things out but in general, the consumer doesn't have, you know, especially in, um, you know, entertainment, TV, movies, radio, it's really difficult to see who's actually behind the scenes. And you've got no idea when you're watching something on TV that is ostensibly, uh, you know, a diverse story or seems to be presenting uh, the story of a life that you might not associate with the BBC or something traditionally. You've got no idea who made that. Tina does a really good job of going through you know, showing, you know, exactly how much less money museums dedicated to Hispanic and African-American history and arts get in terms of public donations from. Lena cites the fact that although non-whites make up 34% of the American population, those who work at um, organizations in the American Association of Museums are 72% white non-Hispanic. And the people who do everything else, you know, the security, the maintenance, the cleaning are disproportionately anything but white. Lena's study, as you say, it has a very, um, it's very specifically focused on, on America, even though it's interesting that much of the kind of the class distinctions in terms of what counts as art and what doesn't was imported from the UK pre-independence and preserved down the years. But how, how does all of this, how does this argument transfer to, to modern day Britain? You say it doesn't sort of make a very easy leap, but it does make the leap. 
Well, I'll just catch you really quickly there to say that Lena talks about what she calls a process of sacralization, which is the importing of high European art values into American society. And a lot of that happens post-independence. Really, the principle of Americans holding French and English and to, accept, you know, to a certain extent other countries and other arts, but holding them on a sort of cultural pedestal, you know, while simultaneously politically disidentifying from being British, at the same time putting European arts on this kind of aspirational pedestal that they were, you know, trying to sort of recreate. Well, I suppose that's the very ideal of kind of the whole wasp, wasp culture. Yeah, exactly. You know, waspism is a fantasy, you know, like the Anglo-Saxons have got nothing to do with it. It's all, mm. <laughs> it's so, but I think you're right to bring that up in that it shows how closely intertwined issues of policing the edges of what counts as art and policing the edges of who counts as what ethnicity in late 19th century American society. Those are totally mutually constitutive issues. So as you say, um, this is a book very specifically about the data of um, America, but, you know, as we know, we live in a globalized culture in which the US and um, you know, Western Europe shares a great deal of sort of DNA. But uh, the kind of social issues that she's talking about very obviously also apply to us in the UK and also don't because we have a very high level of anxiety around um, class categorization words, conversations, you know. I feel like you could probably sit down with any person from the UK and talk about what the word middle class means for <laughs> days and get absolutely nowhere. Um, at the same time, in recent years, it's become increasingly apparent to um, those of us working in the arts in the UK that there are some pretty serious equivalent issues around um, access to working in the arts, access to producing the arts, you know, uh, creatively. And that applies, you know, it applies across film, TV, radio, music and performance art, visual arts, publishing, like, it's really pretty bad. <laughs> the numbers are not getting any better. Um, is, is that right, Josephine, that they're not getting better? Because I, I was looking at the Arts Council thing, the report that came out earlier this year, and there was another uh, broadcast uh, diversity report that came out this year, and there was areas where it was really not getting better. Disabled people was the real classic example. But in some areas, representation of women, senior women, there was some degree of improvement. Is there is there any grounds for optimism, do you think? I think that that's... A great point that helps somehow almost explain the ways in which progress is not being made. In some ways, I was, you know, in some ways, the ground made by a sort of conventional mainstream feminism in terms of advancing women in the workplace has not always worked effectively in collaboration with movements towards increasing racial and class diversity of access. In both of the two most recent books, Smashing It and um, uh, Natalie Ola's book, the financial crash of, of 2007, 2008 looms large, resources uh, became more vanishing than they were before for arts institutions. Uh, things dried up and the jobs went to the most obvious candidates. And now we, f we find ourselves in this uh, you know, a, a predicament with this pandemic, which we've managed to almost not mention, I think, in this podcast, but we're facing certain global financial collapse. It remains to be seen what these books can tell us about how to deal with things as we 
come out the other side? Well, you know, the great lesson, uh, the great historical that Lena presents um, in Entitled is about um, the WPA and the Great Depression in the US. That, you know, she says things were really radically changed, not necessarily in every way that we've um, always believed, but in some ways, when the US government intervened during the depression and said, all right, well, we've got, here's a bunch of money for making art and this is going to, and that radically reconfigured what was conceived of as American art, that this is a highly interventionist strategy during a moment of social crisis, because, you know, I mean, we saw during the financial crash that when we have lack of information, when the government pulls back, you know, when we go for austerity rather than um, doing things, that, that we tend to fall back upon long reified, long calcified social structures, which we just default to, you know, and that's going back to, you know, 2008, when if there were any jobs going in the arts at all, you know, they were going to Oxbridge kids, going to the people with the connections, the people who can, you know, bypass the difficult, um, you know, the difficult front door way in. You know, the, the, the back doors are suddenly the only ones that are opened. And I think that that's something that we're going to have to really be conscious of. And so we can learn something from uh, Roosevelt's policy in 1933, um, perhaps. And I urge everyone, we're going to have to leave it there, but I urge everyone to go and um, look on the TLS website, find Josephine Livingstone's piece, um, because there is plenty of food for thought in it. Um, Josephine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lucy Dallas, Sam Graydon and Josephine Livingston. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. We'll keep broadening your horizons, even if you have to stay inside. This week, we have plenty of art, how the Victorians discovered the World Wide Web and lessons from a chemo quarantine. Next week, we'll do some science, which is always a strong point for Thea and me. Until then, for both of us, stay safe, look after yourselves and goodbye. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.